Let's open our Bibles to John 5. The Gospel of John, chapter 5. Father in heaven, we cannot revive ourselves sufficiently. We cannot rekindle love for thee sufficiently. For it is not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Have mercy upon us now, Heavenly Father, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, that same Spirit that moved upon the face of the waters and brought forth the earth that we live on, that Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that Spirit that quickens us from death in trespasses and sins, we pray that that Spirit, the Spirit of illumination and enlightenment concerning Jesus Christ, would open our minds to see Him and understand Him, and our hearts to love him and obey him. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. John chapter 5. I hope verses 17 through 23 are clear, new, fresh, reviving, provoking, exhorting you to love the Lord Jesus Christ and to honor him. It is a shame how many times we've gone into this passage and not pressed men to honor the Son, like verse 23 teaches, that all men should honor the Son. We go in there too often to dot our I's and cross our T's about particular points of doctrine. And we want both. But I'm sorry that there hasn't been sufficient emphasis on the frame, the context around these verses. The Jews wanted to kill Jesus Christ because he had healed on the Sabbath day. He initially responds by saying, My father works every day of the week and works on every Sabbath day, and so do I. That is verse 17. Every good thing, every providential thing, every birth, every rain, every sunshine that occurs on the seventh day of the week occurred by God's power. The fact that atoms and molecules did not fly apart was because God was upholding all things and all things were consisting all seven days a week. And so Jesus said, up to this point, all the way from the beginning of the world, God's, the Father's been working and so have I. That didn't encourage them in the truth. That provoked them to greater anger because he was saying God was his Father. And we went over those verses. He responded then to say to them in verse 19, the Son does nothing of Himself. We are in total unity in everything that we do. We are one in purpose. We're one in power. We're one in authority. For the Father loveth the Son and shown Him everything that He does, and He's going to show Him some greater works for you to marvel that you're criticizing me, condemning me, wanting to kill me, but he's going to give me two powers that are far greater than breaking the Sabbath. The giving or withholding of life, including eternal life, verse 21, and judgment is committed to Jesus Christ in verse 22, the reason being that though I am in a state of humiliation as the Son of Man, though I'm on earth, having humbled myself to the life of a man, there will be honor given to me. And that's God has exalted Jesus Christ and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess whether they're in heaven, on earth, or under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so we come to verse 24. And let me read 24 through 30. And we will finish it before 
the hour. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Amen, amen and amen. Verses 31 through 38 will declare the three witnesses of Jesus Christ other than himself. And verses 39 through 47 will show why the Jews did not believe on Jesus Christ and neither did they truly believe Moses, who they put so much stock in. Let's come back to verse 24, a verse we've used many times. Verily, verily. We've got a verily, verily with verse 24. We've got one with verse 25. Of a truth, of a truth, stated twice, doubled up to us, the only, the only time it occurs in the Bible is in John. It occurs 25 times, and it tells us that important truth is being revealed to us. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me. To hear the word of Jesus Christ, to hear his preaching, to believe his doctrine, to believe his doctrine, these are present tense verbs. This verse shows three phases of salvation in one verse by verb tenses. The timing of events in our language is by verb tenses, not by the placement of verbs in a sentence. It doesn't matter where the verbs might be located, first, second, third. It's the tense of the verb that indicates when they occurred. Past tense, present, future. Then the perfect tenses, past perfect, present perfect, future perfect. I gave you a little grammar review last night in the preparatory if you wanted to click on that little link and see ordinary, natural examples of those six tenses, or if you wanted to see them in the Bible as well. He that heareth, Jesus is declaring this to his enemies. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me. And they did not. He's declaring to them that they did not. And they did not honor the son. They wanted to kill him. For having declared what he said in verse 17, my father worketh hitherto and I work. You've just heard that because I've just said it to you. Do you believe it? That God the Father had been working all along for 4,000 years until Jesus Christ? Do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus Christ was working and could work every day, including the Sabbath, just like God had? Yes, you hear, you believe. They did not. They wanted to kill him in the next verse because by that statement he had said he was equal with God. What a difference in response to the gospel. It is the savour of life unto life or it is the savour of death unto death is what 2 Corinthians 2 teaches 
that when we preach Christ the way he's supposed to be preached, he will bring forth and show, reveal the elect because they love just plain Bible preaching about Christ. If they need more than that, they're not saved. If you've got to pander to their lusts, pander to their interests, pander to a market segment, they're not saved. Because the real evidence of salvation is believing the word of Jesus Christ and that the Father sent him and that Jesus Christ and him crucified is sufficient. The Apostle Paul was very well educated, very well trained, but he chose to dumb down the gospel so that no one would ever believe it based on his eloquence or rhetoric. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified so that your faith would stand in the power of God rather than the wisdom of men. An eloquent speaker with a, charis- with a charisma and a personality can move an audience and can move individuals. The gospel should never be presented that way. Jesus didn't do it that way. Paul didn't do it that way. We just make manifest the gospel. That is, open it up, lay it out on the table, use all plainness of speech, and God's elect will love it because it tells them about a Christ that the Holy Spirit has already put in their hearts and minds. The wicked will hate it because we don't give them their little goodies and toys, entertainment and fables that keep them interested. And so here we go, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. Hath is the archaic form of to have. The third person singular present tense indicative form of the verb to have. It means to be in possession of eternal life. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath is already in possession of eternal life. The reason he hears and believes is because eternal life has already been given to him. Can't prove it yet, because the verb tenses are present. He he that heareth is present, believeth is present, and hath is present. So it hasn't proven any priority yet. We just happen to know it from the rest of the Bible, that no one without being born again will ever hear and believe the gospel. But we continue into this 24th verse. He is addressing men that don't believe on him. Do you understand the weight and gravity of the situation? This is going to continue in the Gospel of John. Do you know what chapter 6 is like? Same thing. There's a crowd that want to make him king because he fed them a free lunch. People love free food. You can get anyone to accept Jesus into their heart by giving them a free meal. Just get them hungry enough. Anyone in the world will do it. No one's been saved by that a single time ever. Because they're just doing it for the lust of their flesh. They want food in their body. And John 6 is going to have him feeding the 5,000 men plus women and children. They're going to try to make him king because they love a free lunch. And he is going to torture them with some language that is very difficult to understand. He is going to say, you've got to eat me. I'm the bread from heaven. You've got to eat me. If you eat me, you'll never be hungry again. I'm the bread from heaven. Why don't you want to eat me? And if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no eternal life in you. The disciples came to Jesus and said, don't you know that this is a hard doctrine and you're offending the crowd? Oh, I'll change my message and give them a Donald Duck story or a Tim Tebow story. No, Jesus gave them something harder to understand 
in John chapter 6. And after that, they all went away, except his apostles. And he said, will you go away also? This is the Lord Jesus Christ of John. You want the gospel of John? You want the apostle of love? I don't know what you mean by that statement. John's gospel is harsher and harder in its presentation of Jesus Christ than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I like it that way. That's why we're doing it. I want the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. There's so much more doctrine here rather than miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. It's doctrine. And here we are in verse 24. He that heareth my word, present tense, and believeth on him that sent me, present tense, hath everlasting life, present tense. We know from the rest of the Bible that if you believe on Jesus Christ, you had eternal life before that because you had to be born again before that or you would never have believed on Jesus Christ. Now we have another phase of salvation and shall not come into condemnation. Well, with that verb helper there, shall, we've got a future tense. Shall not come into condemnation. Now, what? while, while we're here, what did he say about these kind of Jews and Pharisees that wanted to torture him and, and catch him in his words and kill him? He said to them in Matthew 23, How shall ye escape the damnation of hell? He's explaining right now who are those that are not condemned or that are not damned in hell. Who are they? The ones that hear my word and believe on him that sent me. He's not sending someone else. Don't put your trust in Moses. Don't look for Elijah. He sent me. They did not believe on the Father that sent Jesus Christ. They did not believe on Jesus Christ. They did not honor him. They did not honor the Father. Jesus is not sitting in a seminary class with an overhead projector teaching theology or soteriology to his apostles. He's condemning the audience before him, but we get to thrive on the message because it tells us how we are saved. If a man hears, present tense, the gospel and believes on God who sent Jesus Christ, he is in possession of everlasting life and in a future date when he stands before God and the judge is Jesus Christ, he'll not be condemned. Do you understand how this, how the judgment is all going together? Remember, in verse 22, we have judgment assigned to the Son. In verse 27, we have judgment assigned to the Son. In verse 29, we have men being damned to eternal torment because they're evil. How do you escape that? Who are the ones that that will not happen to? Those that hear the gospel and believe it. They have eternal life. They're in possession of it, and at that future day that is under discussion here, because that future day's judgment has been put in the hands of Jesus, they will not be condemned. But is passed from death unto life. Perfect tense. The present perfect tense is a present tense verb helper of the past tense past. A passive voice verb describing us being passed from death unto life, being born again. We're dead in trespasses and sins. We are quickened into new life in Christ, and it's passing from death unto life. That's the perfect tense. If you didn't pay attention in school like I did, and you haven't spent the last 40 years reading grammar books to catch up, then you may not know the perfect tense as well as you should. But the perfect tense is an action completed or perfected. That's why it's called the perfect tense before the tense that it's in. This is the present perfect tense. The action was perfected before the present. It's still true in the present. 
but it was perfected previously. It was completed previously. So the verse is telling us this wonderful truth we get out of verse 24. A man that is presently hearing the gospel and presently believes the gospel is in possession of eternal life in that future day of judgment where I will sit as judge. He shall not be condemned, but his hearing and believing shows that he has already passed from death unto life. Because is past comes the passing from death into life comes before the hearing and the believing by the nature of a present tense verb compared to a perfect tense verb. This is John 5 and verse 24. Thank you, Lord. If you want more on that, it was posted on our website in April of this year, and it's called The Grammar of Regeneration. It's several pages. It was also in last night's preparatory that you can click on that optional link that was there for your benefit. We preach the gospel, and when someone hears it and believes it, which includes obeying it, we understand this order of things has happened just from this verse at the moment. We understand that they were given eternal life and passed from death unto life. They were quickened by the power of the Holy Spirit before they heard and believed. And in a future day, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, they will not be condemned because their names are in the book of life and they were given eternal life by Christ during their lifetime before they heard and believed. Now we're able to expand that outside of John 5, 24 to know that before the world began, before the foundation of the world, God chose his elect in Christ Jesus because the Bible states it over and over again. If your name is in the book of life, it was written there before the foundation of the world because the book of Revelation teaches that. Then Jesus Christ had to die on the cross to pay the legal price. Then you had to, be, you had to come into existence as a person in order for you to be born again and for you personally to be given eternal life in your new man. Then you hear the gospel. Then you believe it. Then you die, and then you stand before Christ and are never condemned because Christ was condemned in your place. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. How did we get in Christ Jesus? We were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. He died for us on the cross. He said, I lay down my life for the sheep. He didn't lay down his life for the goats. He laid down his life for the sheep. Then they hear the gospel, the good news of what he's done for them. They believe it. They're baptized. They obey him. And when they stand before him, they can stand there confidently that they shall not be condemned. And so that is John 5, 24 opened up a little bit more than what is there. But what is there are three phases of salvation, three verb tenses attached to the present tense, hearing and believing. So we come to verse 25. Verily, verily, they wanted to kill him for healing on the Sabbath. Do you know what he's laying on them now? That he's in charge of condemnation or no condemnation? That it's hearing him? That's the way out? That's the evidence of being out? Of being passed from death unto life? Do you, all, do you grasp what is being laid on these enemies of Jesus that wanted to kill him for healing on the Sabbath? They trifled with the Son of God? My Father worketh hitherto, and so do I work. But he's going to show you two more works. He's going to show you the giving of eternal life. 
and he's going to show you who's in charge of judgment, and it's me. Do you want to keep messing with me? Not said, understood, implied, indicated by what is right here. Verse 25 is a special verse to me. I was 19 or 20 years old in my first apartment with my dear little wife, and the Lord showed me the beauty of verse 25 in comparison to verses 28 and 29, and what a glorious statement of regeneration it is. Let me show you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Then in verses 26 and 27, he states those two things again, the two works that God has assigned to him, the two positions that he has, the two prerogatives that he has of life and of judgment in verses 26 and 27. But this one is, the hour is coming and now is. Now look at verse, just for that timing aspect, look at verse 28. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming. These two resurrections are different. One is entirely future, the other is future and present because it had already started by Jesus Christ. He was already regenerating men by his life-giving voice. He hadn't had a general resurrection yet, which he would have in a day to come, which still hasn't come yet, but that's what's meant in verse 28, the hour is coming. The future tense, resurrection of all that are in the graves, which are defined there. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. We do not confuse this quickening with the few persons that he raised from the dead. That was such a minor event. Remember, the son of the widow of Nain, the daughter of Jairus and Lazarus. We do not confuse this quickening with those few persons because of 524 that has been inserted right in front of it that is not speaking of coming back from a temporary death, but is is speaking of eternal life. 524, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. It's not talking about Lazarus being in the grave for four days. It's talking about something far greater. This is important. Those who want to take away the power of the life-giving voice of Jesus Christ in regeneration will try to tell you that verse 25 is referring to Lazarus and the son of the widow of Nain and the daughter of Jairus. But that is not true by virtue of verse 24. It's not true by virtue of something that's going to go on into the future and is occurring right now by the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus progressed from temporary resurrection, like those three, to the general resurrection. Later, in verses 28 and 29, this resurrection comes in close connection to the gift of eternal life, so we understand it as regeneration. We do not confuse verse 25 with the general resurrection in verses 28 and 29. They're two different things. They're two different things by virtue of the words. Marvel not at this. What I have said to this point is not as great as what I'm about to tell you. So there's a difference. There's a difference in timing. Verse 25 is the hour is coming and now is. In 28, it's all future. In verse 25, only some hear his voice. And it doesn't say anything about graves. In verses 28 and 29, all hear his voice, and it's coming out of graves. So 28 and 29 are the general resurrection of the dead to eternal damnation or eternal life. 
Because that's what's described in those two verses, 28 and 29. 25 is the giving of eternal life. Regeneration. How is a man born again? By the life-giving voice of Jesus Christ. All he has to do is say, live! And like Ezekiel 16 describes, the infant baby in the field that had not been swaddled, nor its navel cut, nor salted, came into life and prospered and grew into a beautiful church of his in Ezekiel 16. He says, live to us. Thank you, Lord, for saying live to us. We receive this quickening. We believe that this is the quickening to eternal life that is described in Ephesians 2. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. If we get out of this passage without that regeneration being dealt with, we're cheating the Lord Jesus Christ. It has to be dealt with, and it's plainly dealt with right there because of the verse it follows and what that verse 24 introduced to us. Everlasting life, passing from death unto life, not coming into condemnation. We have been put in the book of life before the world began, and we shall not see condemnation by virtue of God's electing purpose. Jesus died on the cross to keep us from condemnation. But we in our lives are born sinners. And so we must be changed. And we are changed by the voice of the Son of God. You know, most, most churches believe today that it's the voice of the preacher. It's the voice of the soul winner. It's the voice of the evangelist. It's the voice of a parent. Uh, it doesn't say anything about any of those voices. It says the voice of the Son of God. Do you think some soul winner is going to help in the resurrection of all the dead bodies out of graves in verses 28 and 29? Do you think some organist is going to pipe up just as I am right then and get anyone to come up out of the grave? Can a parent help anyone come up out of the grave? No. And the I hope you can see the parallelism so obvious. There's a resurrection in verse 25. There's a resurrection in 28 and 29. No more are there human means involved in resurrection in verse 25 than there are in verses 28 and 29. And there's none there. I can't resurrect you spiritually. I can't resurrect you physically. All I can do is preach to you the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and either you're going to hear it and believe it and obey it and prove that you're not condemned and already born again, or you're not going to. You're going to trifle with it and go your own way and live your life in the flesh and you will be condemned. Because he that doeth evil is going to the judgment of damnation. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. We understand that as regeneration. We understand that as the first resurrection. See, this is a resurrection. There's another resurrection in 28 and 29. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 6, it says... Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such, the second death hath no power. What saves us from the second death? Being spiritually resurrected and regenerated. The hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. Now, how do they hear? Down in verses 28 and 29, it says they hear. 28. For the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. When Jesus Christ comes back and says, Come up! 
And every single human body, no matter what condition it is in, even if it's been, even if it's Cain and it's been in the ground for 6,000 years, it is coming up. Is that because Cain actively heard and thought about it and said, you know what? I think I'll obey. I think I'll get up and claw my way to the surface and pop this grave open. There is no involvement of the party, the body. It is passive entirely. It is a life-giving voice. It is not a life-offering voice. It is not a life-suggesting voice. It is a life-giving voice. We know that about the resurrection. Jesus is going to appear in the clouds and say something because there's going to be a shout. And every body, every body will be put back together and will come up out of the ground. We believe in the resurrection of the body. That is why we're Baptists. Because we bury a person underwater and we raise that person up because it testifies that we believe in the resurrection of the body. Those people that rub a cross on the forehead with a little bit of H2O or sprinkle or pour do not show any such picture. But we believe in this great event that's coming. The, the bodies are passive. When you're passive, some other power outside of you acts upon you and does all the work. And in the great resurrection, all those, those body parts, the flesh, the bone that is decayed, rotted, been eaten by worms, been eaten by birds, and just scattered over the whole earth. It could have been a sailor at sea. His body's dissolved in the salt water of the ocean. It's just drifted all over the place. The life-giving power of the voice of the Son of God will give life back to that body, pulling all of its cells back together and reestablishing and constituting that body once again, and its soul will be put back in it, and we will all stand before God, righteous and wicked, the just and the unjust. These are events that are coming that are more important than Forbes, Wall Street Journal, or Sports Illustrated want to tell you about. This is what's coming. And Jesus doesn't ask them to come out of the ground. He tells them. When he said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus was not lying in there all bound up in sheets. Did I hear something? Lord, was that you? What'd you say? You want me to come out? I'll try. There wasn't anything like that. Lazarus, come forth. And the voice gave the life. The voice gave the power. There was no asking, cajoling, or pressing, or persuading. It was just, come forth. And so immediately Lazarus is up without help. He's up and walking out all bound up in his clothes, his, his burial clothes. And we see all this by comparing the two resurrections. We know that verse 25 is a spiritual resurrection because verse 24 headed us into it just perfectly. We know that verses 28 and 29 is the general resurrection of all dead bodies in the last day of time that is still yet to come because it mentions graves and it mentions all and it mentions the wicked will go into the judgment of damnation and the righteous will go into the judgment of eternal life. That's all there. And so we know when it says they shall hear that it's hearing passively and that the voice gives life. Therefore, in verse 25, how are we born again? Passively, by Jesus Christ saying, live. You don't even know when it happens. All the Bible says is that you can see the effect of it. In John chapter 3, 
it says, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. That, that we, John chapter 3, the wind bloweth where it listeth. Amen. Remember Jesus said that in verse 21 of John 5, he had life given to him and, and he could give it to whomsoever he will. He quickened whomsoever he will. And the Spirit operates by the executive, Jesus Christ. The wind bloweth where it listeth. That's wherever the wind wants to blow. John 3, 8. And thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. The wind just blows wherever God sends it. We can't tell where it's coming from or where it's going. All we can see is the effect and the fruit of how it affects trees. All of a sudden, trees start moving, and we hey, there's wind. It's coming from that direction, but I wonder where it started. I wonder if it started in North Carolina or if it started in Michigan. We don't know. All we can see is the effect. So we don't know when Jesus has said live, except it changes us about Christ. Then we hear about Jesus Christ. I believe that. I want to live for him. Tears may flow. Repentance should result. Because you've been born again, and you hear about Christ, and you want to obey him. In verse 25, it says, The hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. They're not hearing actively. They're hearing passively. Just like in verses 28 and 29, those that hear, which is every single body that's ever been killed, ever died, every single body is going to come up because that life is going to give it, that voice is going to give it the power to come up and stand before God. Do you think that people would voluntarily go to the final judgment? Oh yeah, I want to be there. You see at the final judgment. No one would want to be there. But they're not going to be asked if they want to be there. They're going to be drug out of the ground and put back together, reconstituted and their spirits, put back in their bodies by the life-giving voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. It shouldn't seem hard to you because it said in John 1, 3, all things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. It says in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 that you read last night, and he, by, he upholds all things by the word of his power. He's able to put it all back together by the word of his power. And the word of his power will bring those bodies up in 28 and 29, just like the word of his power regenerates us in verse 25. And it's the voice of the Son of God. It's not the voice of a preacher, an evangelist. Billy Graham has never put a single person in heaven. It is impossible. The Apostle Paul never got a single person to heaven. There is only one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. All the Apostle Paul did was run around his known part of the earth. This is what he said, 2 Timothy 2.10, I endure all things for the elect's sakes. That's what he did. He ran around to find God's elect and to tell them what God had done for them and what Jesus Christ had done for them. By them believing his message and being baptized and obeying his message, they could prove to themselves that they were God's elect and had eternal life. The purpose of preaching is for me not to get you in the book of life. The purpose of preaching is to get you to obey God for his honor and glory and so that you can know that you have the assurance of eternal life. 2 Peter 1 says to make our calling and election sure, and it gives eight things that we're supposed to add to faith. God gives us the faith, then we're supposed to add to faith virtue and to virtue knowledge, and it works right on up to brotherly kindness and charity. He gives us life. 
He saves us. It is the voice of the Son of God. It is not anyone else's voice. It's not my voice. It's not a parent's voice. It's not Billy Graham's voice, Joel Osteen's voice, Joseph Prince's voice. It's no other voice but the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. All we do is tell God's elect that have been saved by his life-giving voice that regenerated them, this is what he did for you. And when you're born again and you hear the gospel, the Bible says that that message of the gospel comes to you as a presentation of the wisdom and the power of God. If you're not born again, that gospel message comes to you and it's foolishness to you. Because the natural man will not receive the gospel. It is foolishness to him. He can't discern that in that message is glorious truth. And the difference is all in the voice of the Son of God that made the difference. And he has said, live to us. If you hear and believe the gospel and want to obey Jesus Christ this day, it's because Jesus Christ spoke your soul into everlasting life and gave you a new man. 525. Sitting at a little dinette table that we had seeing the resurrection in verse 25 and the resurrection in verses 28 and 29, realizing that it was truly the voice of the Son of God and not preachers about the Son of God, realizing that those that are born again are entirely passive in their regeneration, I levitated. Not really. Don't, don't go quoting me on that. I just came out of my chair with glory and excitement. It's what the Lord has done in our salvation. There are so many that believe if we feed them a nice meal, if we bring medicine for their, dead, for their dying relatives, you know, if we drill a well so they can have fresh water, they'll invite Jesus into their hearts. Not a single person's ever been in heaven by inviting Jesus into their heart. You know, it doesn't say down here in verse 29, and shall come forth they that have invited Jesus into their heart unto the resurrection of life, because that is not the issue. All those that are going to cry, Lord, Lord, in the great day of judgment, Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. What matters is, does God know us? Does Jesus know us? And has God accepted us? Ephesians 1.6 tells us that God put us in Christ Jesus so that he could accept us. It's not us accepting God. It's God accepting us. When you meet God, it is not going to matter whether you accept him. The whole crucial issue is going to be, has he accepted you? When Peter met Cornelius, he looked on Cornelius and the Spirit of God gave him a revelation about that man and his family. And he said, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. I can see right now that God loves some outside the Jewish nation. Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Is accepted, guess what tense that is? Passive voice verb, perfect tense, meaning that they were accepted with God before they began fearing him and working righteousness. That's Acts 10, verses 34 and 35. Look at that verse 25 and just enjoy it, love it, embrace it. The Lord Jesus Christ is laying out the kind of authority he had, and his authority was far greater than healing a man the Sabbath day. His authority included... Passing men from death into life, verse 24. Delivering them from condemnation. 
putting them in possession of eternal life and having a life-giving voice. So we go to 26 and 27, and you should know them well now. It's, Je- it's Jesus stating again for the second time the two things, the two works that the Father is going to give him that would cause them to marvel by the greatness of these events. Verse 26, for, connecting to the life-giving power of verse 25, for as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. God was able to breathe into a little bit of dust the breath of life, and man became a living soul. That is power. That is incredible power. But we're all dead in trespasses and sins, and Jesus is able to speak life into us that by the Spirit of God we have a new man created in us, created in perfect righteousness and true holiness. Verse 27, And hath given him authority to execute judgment also. Notice the and and the also, that there are two things here, verse 26 and verse 27, because he is the Son of Man. I hope you can remember Philippians 2 from the first thing this morning. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but humbled himself to become a man and to become a servant and to humble himself even to the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him. Here it's worded this way. God has given Jesus Christ the power of giving or withholding eternal life, and he's given him the authority to be the final judge in the great day of judgment. Why? Because he's the Son of Man. Because Jesus came to earth The word became flesh and dwelt among us to reward him, to honor him, his son. He's given him this kind of authority. And it did not apply in favorable terms to the audience that heard these words the first time. They were outside of this blessing. Verse 28, marvel not at this. Marvel not at verses 24, 5, 6, and 7. Let me lay one just a step higher on you. For the hour is coming... Future, no present tense function yet, just all future. The hour is coming, which all in, in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. Every dead body will hear the life-giving voice of Jesus Christ. They will not hear Billy, Joel, or anyone else about Jesus Christ. This is the life-giving, resurrecting voice of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. He can say, Tabitha, arise. He can say, take up thy bed and walk. But far greater than that, he can say, come forth. And instead of it being one paralytic for 38 years, it's 75 billion people with all their bodies put back together and their spirits put back into that reconstituted body to stand before him because he said that we ought to fear him which hath the power to cast both body and soul into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. He's our Lord and our Savior. He saved us from that condemnation. He has said, live to us. And I can't wait till he says, live the next time. For the Lord shall ascend from heaven with a... Shout! And with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God shall sound. And, 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 and what? And the dead in Christ shall rise first. He is so powerful. For those poor Thessalonians, they were worried about their dead relatives that were lying in the church cemetery. They were worried, and so Paul wrote and told them, don't worry for them, because they're going to be raised first. 
Now that is power. Do you know what kind of power it is to raise the dead first before you grab the, those that are alive and remain up into the presence of the Lord? We don't have to worry about dead relatives. They get resurrected first. Then us. Then we which are alive remain. Shall be caught up together with the Lord to meet them in the clouds? And so shall we ever be with the Lord. This didn't end quite so well for the audience at hand. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are the graves shall hear his voice. That is not a preacher, that is Jesus Christ. When it says here, they are not hearing actively, they are hearing passively. This is a life-giving voice that drags them out of the ground. No one would want to go to this judgment. They would call for the hills and the mountains to fall on them. They would do anything in their power to avoid the face of him that sits on his throne. But they will all be there in body and spirit and shall come forth. I love that. There is no one that God has ever tried to regenerate. There is no one that Jesus Christ has ever tried to quicken that wasn't quickened. There's no one that God is going to try to raise from the dead that he can't get out of the ground, righteous or wicked. And they shall come forth. Verse 25 says, they that hear shall live. Everyone that he speaks to with his life-giving voice lives. Therefore, everyone that is born again is the exact number that he tried to get born again. Right? Because they that hear shall live. Didn't he tell his father in John 17 that thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him? Those that God gave to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ gave eternal life to them and no more and no less. And shall come forth they that have done good under the resurrection of life and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. In this verse, like so many verses in the Bible, the criterion... The criterion by which you are either judged for heaven or judged for hell is based on obedience. That's why this pulpit presses obedience. The Apostle Paul said, I know that there is a crown of righteousness laid up for me in heaven because I have kept the faith, I have fought a good fight, and I have finished my course. And verse after verse, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, when talking about the great day of judgment, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. We cannot have come together today and heard about this Lord Jesus Christ exalted this high with those two prerogatives and authority and power given to him by God of life, eternal life included, and and judgment We cannot come together today without going out of this place committed that we are going to live and do good for him. Just like the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9 when talking about this event, he said, Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. It isn't accepting God, it's being accepted of God. And we want to labor. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. So there's one resurrection. The Son of God speaks. All shall come forth. Part will be in the resurrection of life. They have eternal life. They shall not come into condemnation. They spend eternity with the Lord. The rest 
come out to the resurrection of damnation. They stand before Jesus Christ in their bodies with their spirits reunited and are sent to hell because their names are not in the book of life. This is what's coming. This is what Jesus laid on his enemies who thought that he had taken too much on him to heal a man on the Sabbath. He sums it up this way before he goes to a new point in verse 21. I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. When we stand before God, we will be judged by the will of God, executed by the Lord Jesus Christ. I can of mine own self do nothing. I do not make willy-nilly judgment you can't influence me for anything. You have got to satisfy the infinite God of heaven, my Father, because I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear from him, he shows me things. He, I hear things and instruction and direction from him. That's how I judge. And my judgment is just. Because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. There are other verses in the scriptures that I could turn you to and I haven't done so that tell us there's only one resurrection left. There's only one day coming that's left. Wherever you turn in the Bible, I didn't, I didn't say wherever you turn in a Tim LaHaye book. I didn't say wherever you turn in a C.I. Schofield book, which he may call a Bible. Wherever you turn in the Bible, there's only one day left. There's no seven-year tribulation. There's no 1,000 zookeepers vacation called a millennium in the Bible. What is coming next is Jesus Christ coming from heaven in flaming fire with his mighty angels to do two things. To wreak vengeance on them that obey not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be adored by all his children. And brethren, how do you know if you're going to adore him on that day? Just start right now. Do you adore him right now? Let's give him honor. Let's give the Lord Jesus Christ honor. Let's understand this passage. In its context of verses 17 through 30, see the beauty of it, appreciate the doctrine of it, but most of all, get the glory and authority and power of Jesus Christ, which he was trying to communicate the most. And let us honor the Son, and by honoring the Son, we honor the Father. We can look forward to meeting him, because he's coming for us to adore him, because we have never seen anything so beautiful, anything so powerful, anything so majestic as the Lord Jesus Christ. We have never seen authority practiced with perfect justice as the Lord Jesus Christ will practice it on all the wicked and all the, all the righteous as they're gathered before him and will be judged righteous, not because of our good works, but because of his good work on the cross of Calvary for us. But we can know that we shall stand in that day by living good, obedient lives to him, as this text teaches, and so many others as well. May Jesus Christ be praised, and may we live for him the rest of today and every day that he gives us till he comes. Amen.